0: Welcome to the College Commons Podcast, passionate perspectives from Judaism's leading thinkers. Brought to you by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, Dean of HUC's Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles, and your host. Welcome to this episode of the College Commons Podcast, in which it's my great pleasure to welcome Scott Shea. Scotch is a leading businessman, thought leader, and author of two widely read books, Getting Our Groove Back, How to Energize American Jewry, and In Good Faith, Questioning Religion and Atheism, the latter of which has been recognized as one of the best books of 2018 by Mosaic authors and earned a finalist award from the National Jewish Book Award. Scott co-founded Signature Bank New York in 2001, which has become known as one of the best banks in New York for private business owners, and he joins us here in Los Angeles in his work expanding Signature Bank nationally. Scott, thank you for joining us. It's a real pleasure to have you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'd like to dive into the themes of religion and atheism, which dominate much of your work and much of the press about your work, Mm -hmm. and I want to start by stipulating something. I think you you are quoted as having said something with which I fundamentally agree, which is that atheism as much as religion is a leap of faith. But it seems to me that that applies if we identify atheism as the kind of atheism that affirms the absence of god. There is however a softer atheism which simply does not believe in god. It seems to me that the affirmation of the absence of God is indeed as much a leap of faith as the affirmation of the presence of God. I agree with you there. But it doesn't seem to me to be the same thing as the simple non-belief in God, which strikes me as a much more rationalist scientific posture because it's a posture of ignorance and doubt in the absence of evidence and therefore reserves judgment. And it's not a leap of faith, it's actually a statement of belief. So how do you react to my formulation? So it's a valid formulation.
1: I I cut it a little differently okay. in that I have no problem, and I say in my book, I have no problem with a non-believer who is a moral non-believer. And by that, I refer to someone who believes in the golden world, as Hillel formulated it 2,000 plus years ago. Don't do unto others as you wouldn't want done unto yourself. The rest is commentary, go learn it. I can make common cause with golden rule atheists. The problem is that reason alone can lead us to all sorts of idolatry, not believing in the God of Abraham, not believing in a monotheistic God, can lead us in difficult and troubling directions. And I think that this is really what the Bible came to, to teach us. The whole idea of the Bible was to upend idolatry. And this is the one thing that I think Reform, conservative, orthodox, and I hope all Jews um, in many ways grapple with, get, Idolatry, in my view, is the default mode of humanity. To a, to a great degree, we all believe in something. I mean, tonight I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, debate uh, Michael Shermer and even he in his, in his formulations of atheism. And I think he's a very, uh, a very erudite and, and, and thoughtful and sensitive person. But he admits we all tend to believe in something because we can't... Know for sure everything we believe in. We rely on our judgments very much so, and that when we lose track, in my view, of the Almighty, of an Ein Sof, an infinite God, we tend to believe in other things, and that's idolatry. and And here's the key point in a way from my in my in my book that I think I make that that underlines sort of all of my thinking, is that we. We tend to think that idolatry in the modern era is, was some quaint sort of bowing down to statues or um, magic-making, something harmless and quaint. Uh, but in reality, idolatry, I think, is the source of all evil. It's a, idolatry is a set of lies about power. It's about ascribing super-authority to finite beings, usually individuals, god-kings, ideologies, or uh, natural processes, or in the ancient world, sometimes to animals. But in the modern era, we're still, unfortunately, following God-kings. All 20th century was a catalogue of God-kings, pharaohs, Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot, Hitler, the Assad family, the Kim family, who created myths about their superpower, super-authority, and used it to harm an awful lot of people. They got away with it because people believed that they were unquestioned and unquestionable. They were like gods. So my fear is that the absence of believing in an almighty God, in a monotheistic God, opens us up to idolatry. I don't think that has to be, but I do think that idolatry is our default mode.
0: Okay, so what you're saying is um, there's a vacuum which we will fill one way or the other. Uh, if I'm, if I, you're not, yes. meaning that I'm, Absolutely, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not, not misrepresenting your position. Yes, that's okay. our default mode, right? And that's what the Bible came to overturn. Okay, so let's talk a bit about idolatry. You've, you've um, articulated a kind of idolatry which has to do with it's, a, it's a, a version of the classical notion of idolatry which is the imbuing of a non divine thing with divinity that it has no right to claim effectively right and that the, that in that in that falsehood is an intrinsic perversion and that and that has all kinds of moral consequences or immoral consequences right. um, I think potentially that, potential certainly potentially okay so the potentially is an important uh, qualifier Uh And yet you call it the root of all evil, which seems to mitigate the potentially uh, qualifier. Mm -hmm. Uh, It seems to be a little bit more absolutist than mere potentiality. It seems to me that the misallocation of divinity is indeed a likely cause of all kinds of problems. I don't think that that's too challenging an argument for a rationalist because a rationalist would say that any allocation of divinity is a misallocation because it's something that doesn't exist. And so sure, yes, you're right. The the attribution of of divinity to someone like that to a pharaoh is is a bad thing. Can I interject? Because I think the it is you may or may
1: not believe in God. Yeah. But it's rational to believe in an infinite God that created the universe that is the end self that is without end that's a rational idea you may say it doesn't exist we don't think about it but it is inherently irrational to think that hitler stalin mao uh you know kim jong-un or whoever had something to do with the creation of the universe that their ideology that they are essentially deified i mean in a certain kind of way how
0: did? But that's that's where a, a, a radical atheist or a radical rationalist could the second half of your formulation can agree and stipulate without further debate. Nobody of of good faith faith wise or of good faith rationality even extreme rationality disputes the first, second half of your of your formulation. It's the first half that um, a. Is independent. By the way, the the, the truth of the second half need not be dependent on the first half. But it is also true that the first half is the controversy. The second half isn't controversial. So the uh, now I speak to you as a religious being and as as, as a believer. I mean, obviously, I'm the representative of a a theist Jewish institution. But I'm not speaking to you representationally. I'm speaking to you as a fellow Jew and as a believer. Nevertheless, it irks me as a believer that we should try to argue that our belief or the belief, even in an abstract kind of uh, new, religiously neutral way, in a creator totality, an Ein Sof, an infinite being, is rational. I, 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 I find that I lean towards the mystics who insist on a kind of understanding of God which um, uh, obviates the need to somehow justify it By virtue of it being um, Supposedly rational Moreover as a rational being as well I actually take I take umbrage Because if we just At it's core If rationalism is evidence based mm-hmm. And if the nature of God Defies evidentiary pinpointing Because God is This ain't is So uh, it's untestable It's unreplicable it's only knowable through emotion. Why do we feel the need to, to categorize it as rational? Except insofar as we acknowledge that we live in a post-enlightenment modern world where the currency of the realm is rationalism and so that we are actually kowtowing to a set of ordered thinking that we, like Maimonides, feel the need to put ourselves in the box of, rather than courageously owning the non-rationalism, not irrationalism, mm-hmm. but the non-rationalism of belief itself. There are
1: certainly many people I talk to for whom faith and non-rational belief is sufficient. It, it, it doesn't work for me, but I totally respect that right. from my perspective and this may be partially my upbringing and the like, I see that there are two possible hypotheses, one that God exists, one that God doesn't exist. And I have to look at the universe and I have to look at my life. I mean, and I think that, and what I try to argue in the book is that there is plenty of evidence from our universe that there is a creator. Because if you stack up the hypothesis of a creator God, of the God of Abraham or the God of the Bible, versus... The scientific hypotheses that say that the we are one of many universes in the multiverse that sprang up from a quantum fluctuation in nothingness when you start to drive down on the assumptions that are needed to get there on the creation Essentially, uh, there, are, and you've probably heard, there are six constants in the universe. Martin, uh, Sir Martin Rees famously wrote a book, Six Constants. There may be as many as 30 constants, but let's just stick with six. Uh, the likelihood of those constants just happening randomly to be able to create a universe that can potentially support life, indeed support atoms, indeed support you know, any matter being created or that wouldn't be blown up with antimatter annihilated the instant it was created, if you do a, a, a just a, assume it's all by random chance, you get to a number of about one over, and that we're a successful universe, so we're the one, one over about 10 to the 140th power. Now that may not sound like a lot, but just keep in mind that 10 to the 78th power is the number of all atoms in the universe. So is it possible that we were created from a quantum flux? Maybe. But if you then look at and I've spent a lot of time looking at um, our ability to randomly morph into existence from amino acids that may have arisen somehow through interactions, and it is it possible that occasionally amino acids happen? But again, when you look at it statistically, and maybe because I'm a banker, I'm a numbers guy, <laughs> we're all composed of proteins. And the minimum size of a protein is about 150 amino acids. It's pretty complex because for a protein to work, it has to fold. As you may or may not know, the average size of a protein in our body, I think, is about um, has about 250 amino acids. They all have to be arranged in particular ways. There's a special alphabet that relates to amino acids. And to make a long story short, the chance of getting a Replicatable, foldable protein is about 10 to the 74th power. And if you look at what needs to happen and the time frame that needs to happen to have the neo Darwinist, which is what everybody is today, the neo Darwinist uh, molecular mutation result in anything that comes close to human beings it the universe would have to continue for many 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 more billions of years. So i hear the argument for well we don't have to worry about creation because we've solved that by science and we don't have to worry about um about the reason that life exists because we solved that with science but the when you actually do the numbers you know i'd rather save my
0: money and buy a bible. Um i but, think the odds are better. But you you're you're setting up um a uh A contrast of opinions, which is not the one that I'm setting up. Okay. Uh, I am indifferent to the math on the likelihood that a a scientist, uh, hardcore rationalist model might indicate, wow, it's really improbable. There's a lowercase m miracle going on here. Great. Great. That's one hypothesis. Fine. I mean, it's, it's rational, but it's also built on probabilities. And it's, it, it, the, the, the rationalism behind it is a rationalism that understands the nature of probabilities, that it's just probabilities. It's not definitive. It doesn't claim to be definitive. That's the key. Whether or not it actually is definitive isn't the point. The point is that the mindset behind it is one that opens itself up to not being definitive. That's a powerful approach. The theist approach is nakedly just belief i mean there's absolutely no testability there's absolutely no replicability there's absolutely nothing except another set of probabilities right. that you can rattle off but i don't i've already sort of let the let the probabilities cancel them out because that's not where i'm going i'm going with the principle of the, 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 the notion, the principle undergirding any theism is nothing more than the emotional vacuum which you referred to in the beginning of your comments. Now, I am a, not only subject to that vacuum, I have embraced it. I have bought into the thematization of it and the civilizationalism of it. And, and I, I own and live and am Jewish in it without, this is not an apology. Right. or an apologia, either one. This is simply a celebration of the fact that I don't feel the need to cast my faith in, in the guise of the fashion of the day, which happens to be rationalism, which I also buy into because it seems to me a crutch, and it seems to me a crutch of um, unself-aware vulnerability. Whereas, if you just embrace the fact That belief is intrinsically non-rational. You are owning your self-location in the universe, and that is powerful. And I don't have to kowtow to some half-baked semi-quasi-rationalism that's qualified by a million other adverbs and adjectives. It's not a rationalist proposition. Well, first of all, I'm glad that that's how you feel I'm, I
1: applaud you and I'm glad you've done it within the Jewish tradition um, because I think that it's a moral and ethical tradition but I do think many people like you also who may not be also considering all of the probabilities and the like that I summarized in a Chinese fortune cookie <laughs> because it's really a much longer conversation but they do grasp for something else and we see that time and time again. And which is why I think we need to make the argument for the, a God who created all of us, but Selim Elohim, the God who created, who, who essentially gave us all a divine spark, because the risk is that many people, not you and not as sensitive to you, they embrace something else. And almost without exception, those graphs, the, what they grasp are ideologies or the like that say that we've got something special that the other people don't have, we, which tends to move away from the golden rule. I mean, how did Stalin, I'll take him as an example, clearly an, clearly an idolatrous figure. I think you you'd stipulate that for sure. So how did he get, who gave him the authority and how did everybody accept more than who gave it to him? How did everyone accept? His order to kill all the kulaks, to starve a quarter of the Ukraine, to send tens of millions to the Gulag, and so much worse. To make an alliance
0: with Hitler to do a million uh, other a yeah, million yeah, other yeah, bad yeah, stuff. Yeah, That's right. why. But yeah, yeah, I exactly. could go on. And <laughs> right, right. No, you're not going you to yeah, yeah. yeah I don't have to convince you. No, no.
1: Or your listeners. <laughs> right. But how did he get that authority? Because he used the same sort of poetry, pageantry, myths and theater, and demonstrations of brutal power, just like the God King Pharaoh did. It's the same trope over and over again, and people like to buy into that in a certain kind of way, because they get a taste of their imagined God King's power, because now they're part of the communist ideology, and if you're a Kulak, you don't share divinity with me. You share something, you share something with with the bad God King, and Whenever the, One thing that's for sure is that whenever, if you're an idolater, you know you have to defeat the other god king. You know that that's what you have to do because the other god king will come after you. But that's true of
0: monotheists as well. Monotheists have invested very, very much because of the mono in monotheist. Mm-hmm. Any other belief, even if it never intersects with us sociologically, just the mere fact of there being another belief out there which is not in the monotheist uh, version of things is intrinsically a challenge to our monotheism because our monotheism is a total kind of theology. By definition, it's mono, not one, but right. alone. That's the, it's important to remember that monotheism does not mean belief in one God. It means belief in one God alone. That's what mono means. Well, me.
1: a lot like, of that during your era got us into trouble because of the
0: disputations in the early study. But that's, that my point. that's my point. That's why I don't think we can put that onto to idolatry. Uh, I, think, I think monotheism is the, is the one that is, from a sociological perspective, forces conflict. Because any other belief is, by definition, a thorn in the side of the monotheist. To claim it, 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 it there's no way around it, and so that's conflict right there, and that has justified horrible things. But but um, we've we've deviated a bit because I haven't gotten an answer. Yes. So here's the thing. Forgive me for pushing. I, I do a, for it with respect, and I can see the I'm, pleasure for of a good argument on your I, face because I'm, you, I'm a Jew. I love A good is uh, and right. a gentleman. I will add. Um, I don't disagree with the vacuum. I, I don't disagree that, that Stalin can uh, draw on desires and, and things and fill them with falsities that might, in, short, in the short term, satisfy long enough term to cause a lot of damage. I would point out a couple other things, though, that, that um, a lot of people would attribute to Stalin the fact that he improved their lives. Uh, a lot of people would argue that, there were, uh, that all dictators, all tyrants... They never get where they get just by browbeating and murdering. They also make sure that they have allies, and they, it's a patronage model. It's a, it's a, and so they—I mean, there's, there's other things going on which the raw moral lens on his criminality— fails to contend with. Now, the reason I want to contend with the other things that he did that were useful is because for us to fight the Stalins of the world, we have to contend with the good things they do because otherwise we're just fighting a paper tiger. The dimensionality of the problem deserves our attention because otherwise we won't really tackle the problem. And the problem is that prior to Stalin they were living in the dark ages. Uh, I mean, sociologically, I mean, agriculturally, I mean, in the distribution of wealth, I mean, in a million of things. And fine, we can stipulate that the Soviet Union was no great uh, leap from where we are, but it, it may have been for a significant subset of the Soviet population, indeed, a move forward from the prior status quo. Now, I don't feel the need to defend it. Don't get me wrong, please. All I'm doing is I'm analyzing... The, 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 the pros and cons from an objective perspective as to answer your question. Why would someone like Solon so patently monstrous? How do they get traction? How do they achieve such power with such horrors under their belt? And clearly, the, the, if we just attribute it to idolatry, even though we agree it's idolatrous, we're going to miss some of the things that we need to have better answers for. Well, let me rephrase your question because I do think that idolatry shows
1: itself up everywhere and always and I'm certainly not going to (laughs) excuse Stalin's choice but I'm going to rephrase your question. Okay. What if I said to you that a medical director of a major insurance company told me who will remain nameless that, you know what, Scott, if we wanted to in this country we could um, send everyone to college for free. Mm-hmm. You know how? We just stop giving medical care, all but routine medical care, to infants under 30 days and the elderly. Right. You will save all those neonatal center. Those are really expensive. Keeping right. people alive at the end of life, really expensive. I've just reformulated, essentially, without sending people to the gulag, right. what a enlightened... Um, person would say, what an enlightened person did say, not would say, did say to me. Uh, And but the problem is, and it's and it's the same problem and why idolatry is such a commonality, is that it requires someone to decide who should live and who should die to play God. Stalin got to play God. And by saying those other people are not like us. Well Peter Singer says babies with problems, I think he believes in infocide up to like two, I'm not sure exactly, one or two years old. But if you discover that a infant is severely disabled, you know right. society's costs are too high. Those are all rational, by the way. Cost and suffering. Yeah. I mean, it's a totally rational calculation right. that one can do, which is why um, I worry a little bit about reason. I mean, communism. Whether you like it or not, is absolutely a reasoned ideology. I mean, right. there's no question about it. Responding to some of the issues that you're saying, so I come back and come back every time I look at evil. Even when I look at evil in our country, I look at evil in the modern era. I'll give you a micro example. I'll give you a micro a micro example of why I'm 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 pressing so hard on this issue of idolatry. Let's go. Let's leave the macro basis. Okay. Let's talk about. How did Charlie Rose, Matt Lauer, Harvey Weinstein, Eric Schneiderman, um, and Kevin Spacey—and, you know, I could go on. It's a long, unfortunate, sad list. list. How did they get to abuse so many people? Because they set themselves up as— idols as gods in their in their in their businesses they were unquestioned and unquestionable in their industries now they weren't sending people to the gulag like stalin but they could certainly ruin someone's career all of the people i mentioned could ruin someone's career because they they were given super authority they told they picked up the phone and they said you know fred or jane or charlie or samantha whatever you're not booking this person ever again and you know what they didn't get booked ever again demonstrations of brutality work
0: unfortunately yeah but there was no attribution of divinity i mean there was i super think, uh, authority or super power is what i said it's not super it's 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 unwarranted it's certainly abused i mean a list that you yes. get a select list of people who by definition abuse but but there's no attribution of anything other than the exchange of goods, services, uh, abundance and absence, and uh, Joe or Jane victim I understand, understands that Kevin Spacey has a lot of power, a lot yeah. of resources, not numinous power, but resource power that comes from the earth that has to do with money and exposure. And there was no attribution to these people. Now, sure, of course there are gonna be individuals who are starstruck or people who, who are susceptible or whatever. But you're but 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 most people they make a rational calculation based on what this person can give me or withhold from me, not because they're intrinsically Endowed with anything above me But because they have achieved stuff That they can now distribute And that they will distribute as they see fit And I want to be on their good side To get that distribution That is not uh, the, the kind of idolatry you're talking it, it may be we can, we, can, we can metaphorize And call that a kind of idolatry Which I'm comfortable with But I'm, I'm resistant to, to, to my understanding And I may be misunderstanding things. Okay, so let me so, press
1: a little further Okay they aren't actually real gods because they can be toppled just like Stott, just like hitler and, right. and other well, people well, can
0: be we toppled we know that they're not right
1: we know that they're not gods yes but i would say if you contemporaneously listen to people describing their powers they didn't harvey Weinstein just didn't just have the normal power that one would have with normal authority and it went beyond his ability to distribute roles and the like, it was an industry power. He could make calls just, and I'm taking him as an example, and destroy someone's career because of yes. who he was. Because you know, this is what Harvey Weinstein wants, and I, sadly, in my career, on Wall Street and other other situations, I've heard this is what so and so wants, and so so and so gets it. it. It's not that they're distributing anything to me, but it's this aura. Of, you know, again, it's not pageantry and poetry in the same way as Hitler used it or as the Assad uses uses it or as the Kim family uses it. But it is the same idea, and I'm taking it from a micro to a macro basis, of any time we do that, we we tend to slip very, very quickly into idolatry. Even in this, the United States right now, I will say to you, people take truths from whoever they're – I don't want to – Say that they're God King Pharaohs,
0: but whoever their leaders are, I, and that happens again and again. I, in, in my experience, and now I'm not, I, I can't speak with any authority here, just as a social being who has friends and conversations, sure. and that's not that's not the dynamic that is at play when you use the word superpower, super authority, or deification or idolatry. All of those evoke. Uh, Numinousness—the mm-hmm. the the sphere above the atmosphere—not n- n- spatially speaking, but uh, uh, religiously speaking. Uh, uh, the word I use the word numinous because it's religiously neutral, but it refers sure. to the religious impulse. Sure. I just don't agree that for the vast majority of people who willingly or unwillingly or semi-willingly or whatever. Subject themselves or find themselves subject to these powers, these people who do have power. I'm not questioning the power. I'm not questioning the power of the phone call or that they couldn't actually do damage or indeed help. I, I'm acknowledging that. That's the distribution part. But, but I'm, I'm saying that the people who are victims of it, in my experience, which is secondhand and completely unscientific, they don't, and when they go home, and have a beer with their buddy, what are they saying about Weinstein? They're not saying that Weinstein is actually a human being in whom resides anything. They're saying, God, blanket, I got this schmuck of a boss who wants everything, and they, and they see right through it, and they may or they may not play the game, and they may be pressured, and they may have all kinds of, there may be real genuine victimhood here, don't get me wrong, but the majority of them do not concede to these powerful, powerful people, no doubt about their power, anything remotely idolatrous. If anything, they're constantly knocking them down, but acceding to them because, they, because of the distribution of, 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 of stuff. We agree on the power, the raw power, micro or macro, you name it, that there is a, a, a real power, an exercisable power that people can actually you know, make other people or other things happen in certain ways because of this power. Power is a real thing. It is, it is the capacity to do things. We don't disagree about that. I think where we disagree is the attribution to those powerful people by third parties or second parties as to the nature of that power. It may be humongous power. It may be very readily violated power. All of those things, to be sure, you and I agree completely, but the source of that power is is radically different in our perspectives. I think most people are fundamentally skeptical about the source of that power. They understand that that power came from either ruthlessness or great skill in one thing and willingness to be papered over by other. I mean, whatever the dynamics of human interactions are that we all know, but but not the attribution of something um, uh, even remotely um, god kingy or or even even um, special. So let me. D- even drill
1: it on to another place that I think we okay. agree so all the folks I just mentioned yeah. certainly didn't follow the golden rule agreed because clearly right? okay so We're if agreeing. I said that my fundamental <laughs> desire is to make common cause for people who follow Hill- Hillel's formulation of the golden rule don't do unto others what you wouldn't want done unto themselves we agree. We agree, right? We agree, and and we
0: should promote
1: that. Yes. Right. So I think at a very fundamental level, that's what I'm looking for people to do. And I and I don't and if so, if you don't believe in God, and you don't believe in anything, but you believe in that, you believe in common humanity. I can make common cause with you. Yes. Uh, here, here. Not everybody gets it. Can your boo? That's can you boo? That's good. So, but the the issue is that so many people who. We look up to as people of reason. I mean, I, I did a, I, I had a great time. I went to, I did a Google talk, which is, uh, was a lot of fun. And I met a lot of, you know, Gen Zers and Millennials before and after the the event. It was a lot of fun. And, and, but I had a common question that I heard many multiples of times. Um, numerous times, not numinous, but numerous <laughs> um, times, which is People saying, well, you know, we have reason. That's enough. And I kept telling him, I'm okay with that as long as, again, you, you follow the, the golden rule. Well, what about Kant? And I would have to say that, you know, Kant hated the Jews. He said he wouldn't lecture to the... I mean, you, you probably yes, read it. him. He hated the Jews. He was an absolute sexist. He thought Negroes, as he put it, Negroes of Africa have feeling that only rises to a trifle. I think I'm. if I didn't get the the quote exactly, it's something like that. He's a racist. He's a sexist. He's a um, misogynist too. I think he said um, something like, uh, in marriage, he is the party to direct and she is the party to obey. Something along those lines. So again and again... This is the fellow we look to for the moral imperative. And any time, and I really worry, that's why I worry so much about non-belief in God is because I think it's so easy to morph into idolatry. And I think Kant, who did a lot of good stuff, did. But I honestly couldn't make common cause with him because clearly he doesn't think of the
0: golden rule.
1: He excluded a ton of people
0: you can, I think, what I hear you saying is you can You can imagine how, from a purely rationalist perspective, you could arrive at something equi- uh, a functionally equivalent of the golden rule, because there are all kinds of rational reasons not to do unto others that you wouldn't want to do to yourself, because there are risks. There's all kinds of purely rational, and, 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 and Scott's nodding his head. So we, yes. we can, yes. and those <laughs> are the people with whom you can make comments. And we can also agree, by the uh, other side of the coin, or the Inversion of the same thing. We can also agree that there are people who whose faith in God is genuine and sincere and coming from a good place or whatever, but who don't follow the golden rule.
1: Well, from my perspective, those are idolaters in monotheistic art. So they're misled. They're
0: idolaters. misled.
1: Cause, and let's go back to... You, you touched on this before, Josh, and it was an interesting point that I, I wanted to follow up on. I, I think people... And Jews in particular don't focus enough on the third commandment, which is not to take God's name b'shav.
0: No, in Not a, to take it in, in vain. For not to no, take God's no name in gr- vain.
1: Gratuitously. Well, but I think it's a little deeper than that. And what I try to argue in the book is that any time— this is where religion goes off the deep end and becomes idolatrous. Because any time I say or someone says— I've got a direct line to God. I've got a direct intercom to God. And I know what he's going to say. Listen to me because I'm I'm the vicar of God. I'm the vicar of God. I'm the spokesperson for God. I'm the sole spokesperson of God. (laughs) Then that's when the real horrors start because then you weaponize monotheism to turn it into idolatry. So that's sort of my theory for when monotheism goes off the deep end. And you have no shortage, again, of the Ayatollah. right. You know, they created a mini. Forget about all the other stuff. Nobody even talks about the mini Holocaust right after the Ayatollah Khomeini took over for the Baha'i. I mean, so many things just happened because he, he said he said attempt of genocide. He said anybody, any any religion after after Islam is is you know the people have to be slaughtered right. essentially. I, I don't think I'm even no making no. It no worse that's my, un- that's my
0: understanding. <laughs> yes, that's right. yes
1: um, and people did it. You know, so because the Ayatollah was a sole spokesperson for God, literally. And we've seen that, unfortunately, with the Crusades, and we see it with the KK. We saw it here, sadly, in this country right. with the KKK, Jim Crow. And so I think we have to, and that's why I say in the book this see, I, I, I think there is is a theory, an overarching theory of evil, and I think it relates to monotheism, and to, I mean, it relates to idolatry. And when monotheism becomes idolatrous, and we no longer look at everyone as a tzalem elokim. Clearly Ayatollah Khomeini wasn't thinking of the Baha'is at as a Elohim elokim as being created in the image of Obviously, God. Yeah. Right? So, and clearly the crusading popes didn't think of the Jews or the Muslims right. as being made in the, in, the, in the image of God. That's when you really get the, the horse.
0: Before we return to the podcast, we want to let you know about digital learning on the College Commons platform. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, check out the online courses at collegecommons.huc.edu for in-depth learning, digital syllabi, assignments, inspiration for teaching, and one of our most influential courses called Making Prayer Real. Subscribe with your synagogue for all this and more. Just click sign up at collegecommons.huc.edu. Oh, and one more thing. Help us out and rate us on iTunes. But whatever you do, do not give us five stars unless we deserve it. Now, back to our podcast. What's religious about any of this? I I get the golden rule part. I get why that is the keystone to your argument mm-hmm. for the fundamental— and, and embedded in the in the uh, your commitment to the golden rule is uh, the 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 recognition of the divine spark in all of humanity by mere virtue of being human. End of story. Full stop. Done. No qualification. Great. That that's really kind of. Um, that's that's uh, comfort food. We're we're good. That's that's land's great.
1: Not accepted by a lot
0: of people. I'm glad we we agree. And I'm I'm. Home I don't to you. know. I, maybe I maybe I travel in very circumscribed circles. But I don't know anybody who would say no. You know what? That's dumb. Well, let me, let me
1: just say this. And I'll take our current political situation. I don't care which side anyone's on. I mean, there was a recent study done by two professors, and actually, David Brooks wrote about this in a while, while back in the Times, and um, he asked uh, about the people in the opposite party, so Republicans, Democrats. He found about four. I may be getting the statistics off a little bit because I don't have it memorized, but he said forty percent. If you ask forty percent of each side, they think the other either side. They think the other side is not only wrong, but actually evil. Mm -hmm. And about, um, and I don't remember whether it was Republicans or Democrats, but um, I think it were related to 16 and 20%, whichever side, thought that it would be okay if large numbers of the other party just went away, died. (laughs) And um, that's an indicator that, you know, idolatry is raising its its ugly head here in this
0: United States. And that worries the Dickens out of me. That's worrisome. Uh, I agree with you. And I think, again, even, I suspect, by the way, that those same people who perhaps flippantly and, lean, you know, it's one thing yeah, that I, I, I hope all, so. Believe me, yeah, yeah, yeah. I hope so. They would also lament the polarization of the American political conversation. So there's I'm sure there's all kinds because that's the one thing every, both sides agree on that we're too polarized. And right. So I mean, who knows? I, I I agree. I um. I just, I just find, uh, I find that there's an opportunity for us. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with um, with uh, Stephen J. Gould's uh, uh, formulation of noma, non-overlapping magisteria, yes. wherein religion, uh, by the nature of the religious sensibility, really can't comment on not convincingly or meaningfully on the science nor can really science the way science is structured to understand the universe it can't really it has no authority based on the parameters that it puts on its own authority voluntarily as science but the nature of doubt and the nature of ignorance and all of these things as a scientific good is such that it really god is formulated in such a way that it can't be tested by science it's not it's not really in the cards um I like that because I think it affords tremendous dignity to both ways of looking at the world, which really says that faith, it's it's Augustinian.
1: I, I agree with you, but when you listen, and I've now had to read and have read, Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett, Michael Shermer, uh, and it goes, the list goes on uh, Victor Stenger, all sci- all of the, all of the, except for Christopher Richards, all are scientists one form or another. They all disagree. Sam Harris said something close to, you know, religious people need to be put in cages because they're dangerous to others. You know, they could fly into buildings. Uh-huh. So no, we
0: can't just ignore, um, but maybe we can reformulate our argument in such a way that, um, I mean the religious argument, the, the, the religious sensibility, in such a way that can, um, can, can in a serious, thoughtful way, re-engage with very active atheists. By the way, Shermer, if I'm not mistaken, is of the softer type of atheist, meaning the pure scientific atheist, as opposed to the religious atheist. The, the pure scientific atheist being that I, I do not believe in God, as opposed to I affirm the absence of God. Um, he's, yes, he's
1: one softer yeah, yeah. than saying, you know, for sure there's no God. Because right, right. in the end, you can't no. prove there's a God and you can't prove there's not a right. God. That, that's
0: why I love your formulation, that, that atheism as much as religion is a leap of faith. To me, that is an accurate descriptor. I don't, neither one bothers me, but I think it's accurate. I think uh, um, it's important to recognize that, but I also think it's important to embrace that, yes. and then to talk about that, and then to and if you really, really embrace that, what happens is I think that the religious sensibility we cease trying to bend over backwards to cast ourselves as rationalists. Let's not let's not pretend we're something we're not. We're we 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 have chosen the spirit of the religious sensibility. So what's this, you know, Maimonides kind of did us a disservice by insisting that you could rationalize religion, when in fact, when you're doing that, what you're really doing is kowtowing to a sociological fad. Not that science is a fad, I think it's here to stay. But so I shouldn't call it a fad, a sociological stream. I don't feel the need to kowtow to it.
1: Well, here's the reason why we need to take this seriously, is that the fastest growing segment in the United States in terms of religious category is nuns. None. No religious category. Which, which does um, that map onto atheism at all? Um it does to some degree. Um thirty only thirty percent of Gen Zers or millennials feel that God is important. So a rapidly growing and I think the statistic is something like uh, overall, it's something like 16%. Again, your listeners will correct me if I'm no, off a fair percentage you're pointing right. to, but I'm, I'm directionally correct. Overall, it's 16%. Among millennials, it's something like 25% non-believers. Among Gen Zers, 33% non-believers. And when I've gone on some campuses, uh, people have told me that the zeitgeist is to stop believing once you get to, to college. To college. And, and I'm going to paraphrase what one person said to me, which is, who, said, who was a believer, a present believer, then a believer, um, said, when you get to campus, the professors look on you with charity if you're a believer, but they say, don't worry, we will educate you because you either just are ill-informed or you've been clinging to your parents' superstitions. And so I do think it's important to make the case that your case is fine to say that the case you're making that science and, and, and religion are separate magisteria. Or as Stephen Gould, Stephen Jay Gould, put it, I coined it, is um, is great. But that's clearly not what's being taught. What's being taught in many colleges right, and universities is trumps the other. Is that you know? This is just that's a failed hypothesis. Victor Stenger actually um, titled one of his book "God: The Failed Hypothesis." Now, I'm just going to say one other thing because please, I'm, please. I'm on uh, as long as I'm on this, on this train, um, which is that the thing that's curious to me because I've read so many studies. I cited a couple of them, but I read more uh, studies where where people try to evaluate does God exist by intercessory prayer, by all sorts of different means. And I read these studies and I'm almost laughing because the scientists create a God and then they say, how can we study whether this is God or not? And I'm thinking... Well, gee, wasn't that covered in the Ten Commandments about creating God? No, I don't believe in created God. I created gods right, right. either.
0: Whatever you come up with isn't going to yeah. be the thing that I'm. I'm, uh, I'm depositing yeah, I don't faith.
1: believe in that God. What are you? Why right, are you oh, spending right. money
0: it's, on this? It's uh, a, uh, what's the word? It's not. Um, What's the word when you set up a false uh, hypothesis merely for the sake a of? Straw, mac- man. straw man, Thank you.
1: Although they don't say that. They No. They, say, no they this don't. is God. Uh, they you know, do think Charles think and Str- they're, they're acting oh. in
0: good faith in the sense that they don't think they're setting up a straw man. They think that they're act. They're they're responding to the described entity that they're then testing. Right. That's that I don't think that's dishonest. Oh, it's not. I don't think they're doing it in bad faith. But it's just it's ill thought out. It, that's for sure. Uh, because the straw man is it's not it's I don't believe in that god either. So and but that's why I say it's untestable. God the idea is untestable. So stop t- and I'm saying that we religious people have invited that kind of straw man test upon ourselves by by arguing the rationalist argument we have we have entered into that arena and set ourselves up because the proposition of god simply will not conform to the categories of science science is just is a methodology based on
1: observation and empirical evidence and science has really started, and some scientists, I don't want to say science, but science some scientists have really said, well, you know, I'm a scientist, I'm here to help, so I'm going to tell you uh, about other things that really aren't relevant. For example... So this
0: is what you call scientism. This is what I call so scientism. What you're saying is that uh, perhaps there's been some slippage from science as a methodology into science as an ideology. Yes, and, and here's where it's a danger. So scientists
1: are so worried, obsessed is the wrong word, but almost about giving succor to the creationists that to a certain degree they've ossified Darwinism, you know, and neo-Darwinism in particular, so that even when there are advances. In biology, that are outside of the orthodox scientific framework, and I use that word advisedly. Yeah, I hear you. They tend to dismiss them. then Margulis came up with this idea of symbio, symbiogenesis, where um, some cells would actually take in DNA whole from other cells, and that's how the juvenile slug, for example actually was able to utilize photosynthesis and the like. And a whole bunch of, she brings a whole bunch of examples, which are really amazing, remarkable examples, brilliant, um, and was a major, and and really had a major contribution to make to science, except because it didn't fit, the idea of symbiogenesis didn't fit the traditional Darwinist, neo-Darwinist model that there would be cell mutation, cell mutations, would some would be good, and they would create a new you know, morphing of a species um, over time, over, you know, zillions of years. She was rejected. She was almost sent, you know, practically to go teach middle school biology. I mean, the scientific community castigated her throughout, told her she was nuts. None of which I'm saying is an exaggeration either. Yet, finally though, you know, she kept working on the data, sending the data, and it became irrefutable. Well. That cost science a number of years because it didn't fit the, it didn't fit the neo-Darwinist framework. And now people are still fighting it, frankly, saying, "Well, this only applies to plants." So when science takes on its own orthodoxy, then it's also
0: an issue for science. I think this because same- scientists are just as subject to the vacuum that motivates belief as our religious right. people. And right. so they, f- they have the same needs that they have to fill and but it but when in the social sphere in the in the policy f- sphere or it can become a tyranny of its yeah. own. news flesh
1: scientists are human right <laughs> right and they and and they like power and they like not being proven wrong and uh it's a big problem because you know it's a problem at other places in science but it's particularly become a problem and this may be a sort of symbiogenesis between religious folks and scientists because we've we seem to find ourselves in a uh, in the ring together when Yes. Maybe it'd be a lot better if we had separate magisteria. Well, and he said, this is what we could say about our areas. We're not
0: going to say something that we feel we can't say. And, and and the non-overlapping magisteria argument is a prescriptive argument. What it says is, is religion, as it understands its own limitations, has no right, has no capacity legitimately to impinge upon the scientific sphere and vice versa. It doesn't mean, however, that in fact, in the social doings of a, of a group of people that they respect that and that, and that religious people don't overstep their bounds and, that, and scientists don't overstep. They do. Yes. And in the realm of public policy, um, it becomes extremely contentious. And, 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 and I think a lot of us religious folks who are deeply committed to the scientific community's um, undeniable and life-changing contributions to our world— I think we're going to end up siding with the scientists, as I certainly do in this, because as, as much as I'm a religious person and belong to a religious community, I do voluntarily uh, subject my religiosity to the, um, to the circumscribed confines of, of, of disenfranchisement when it comes to public policy. Sure, I like vaccines. I make right. sure. And, yeah. I don't, and I don't want, and I don't want my government to be right. choosing anything religious because there's no way to choose anything religious without favoring something religious. Totally agree. And we're now, you know, just to morph on a
1: separate subject, but it's related, which is that's why I think what the danger is of the Rabanut Rashid yes. in, in Israel. It is. I think, again, you should never give religious institutions state power. On the other hand, I don't think you should use state power to... Go a little crazy and prescribe religious expression when it's part of right. citizens' rights as well. I think that's where the rubber meets the road, and it's very difficult. And that's a whole other podcast. And, 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 right,
0: and that's where interests come into play. And we're going to have to disagree on the rational part, but we can agree on the reasonable part. That uh, uh, it is a reasonable thing to um, to squeeze the very very best beauty of our tradition out for the sake of being a moral compass uh, to do our work which is to shed light on the human condition uh, with our best moral selves and uh, to have people like you as interlocutors and partners is a privilege and a gift thank you
1: thank you hopefully to be continued at a Shabbat table
0: We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the College Commons podcast, available wherever you listen to your podcasts or at the College Commons website, collegecommons.huc.edu, where you can also stay tuned for future episodes.